thank you guys. Can you hear me? Thank you so much. Yeah, what a privilege this is. Um, and thank you so much for the prayer too, Cherie. Uh, I love the prayer. Um, how privileged we all are to be in Alcoholics Anonymous and be sober and being able to connect across the world. Uh, it's amazing. So, um, yeah, so my name's Mark. I'm an alcoholic and I, I actually live in a little place called Warragee, which is near Nara, which is on the south coast of New South Wales. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty small town, um, not a huge fellowship. Um, and I have a home group. And my home group is the Nara There is a Solution Recovery Group. Um, we convene three meetings a week. They're literature-based meetings, um, including a big book study and steps and traditions. Um, and we love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we love the recovery program. Um, and I know that uh, it certainly turned my life around completely, 180 degrees off in a different direction. And I never imagined I'd be doing something like this. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, I was a homeless guy on the streets, hanging out in the bushes and things like that. So um, this has been a huge turnaround for me. It hasn't happened overnight. Um, it's been a process of recovery. And little by slowly, my life has uh, opened up into a new world, a new and wonderful world. And I absolutely love it. Um, so I don't know, I have no idea how many new people are in the room, but um, I just want to say if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, welcome to AA, welcome to the Fellowship of the Spirit, welcome to this conference, and um, what an experience it is to be able to participate. And uh, if you're new um, and you're scared and you feel lost, I'm right there with you because I've certainly been that way and that's how I was when I came to AA. I was absolutely terrified. I was completely lost and I had no idea what was going on. Uh, and my life was absolutely in the toilet when I came to AA. So um, I'm right there with you and I wish you all the best. And I hope I'm gonna address a lot of my talk to you um, because it's so important, um, this whole idea of step one is, uh, you know, without it and without admitting complete defeat, I could have never embarked on the journey that I'm currently on. So it's so important for me to always remember that. Uh, so welcome all you newcomers. Um, I was thinking um, about the current situation that we're in um, and how relevant that prayer was that uh, Cherie prayed for us all. And I was also thinking about there's a little piece in the book, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions in step 11, which I think is really relevant to the time that we're in. And I'm just going to read, it's just a short paragraph. I just want to talk about that for a moment. It says in the 12 and 12 in step 11, almost any experienced AA will tell you how his affairs have taken remarkable and unexpected turns for the better as he tried to improve his conscious contact with God. He will also report that out of every season of grief or suffering, when the hand of God seemed heavy or even unjust, new lessons for living were learned, new resources of courage were uncovered, and that finally, inescapably, the conviction came that God does move in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Um, and I just... I just think that's so relevant. I just think that there's a renewal 
out of all my pain that I've ever gone through personally. And now we're, as a planet, going through this uh, huge experience, which is so new, so different, at times so scary. Um, so, so with that in AA comes leadership and comes a vision. Uh, and I think this weekend is a big part of that. You know what I mean? We all need leaders in AA. The second tradition tells us that, that we're trusted servants and we don't govern, but we need leadership in AA. Um, and without leaders and without vision and without people stepping up to the mark, things like this just couldn't happen. So I just want to say thanks to everyone who's had anything to do with uh, putting this weekend on, anything to do with all the organisation, all the service, uh, because without it, you know, we couldn't meet. So thanks, guys. It's awesome. Um, so this is a real privilege to be able to share with you guys. Um, and I think, I hope there's some of my home group here. We're only a little group uh, on the South Coast. There's only about 10 of us uh, that meet. And uh, we have a few visitors to our meeting. But we're certainly enthusiastic and love the AA recovery program. And I know we're on the same page when it comes to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. We believe in sponsorship, we believe in the traditions, and we believe as AA is a way of life um, and what a life it is. So, um, you know, I'm here basically, first of all, to tell a bit of my drinking story. So, you know, without my drinking story, without King Alcohol, I never would have made it to AA. So I started drinking early in my life and I absolutely loved alcohol. I loved the effect produced by alcohol and it changed me. It changed me for the better. It gave me a voice. It gave me an opportunity to do many, many things I could never do when I was sober. And that's because I felt so inwardly different somehow. I was very sensitive, very self-conscious, very frightened, uh, didn't seem to connect to people very well and seemed very sort of misunderstood and isolated in my way that I looked at the world. And uh, that was a real problem for me, I've got to tell you. I really struggled with a lot of that. And when I was about 12 years old, I found alcohol. And I found some other substances too, but I certainly found alcohol and I absolutely loved it. It changed me. Um, it started to really excite me. It was like I'd sort of changed channels or something that went from black and white to colour. And I looked at the world and everything looked different to me. You know what I mean? And I felt different. And somehow that barrier I seemed to have between me and the world and me and people in general seemed to leave me. And I seemed to be able to connect with others. I know now in hindsight, it was all a false connection, but at the time I absolutely loved it. And I started to chase it. Um, and I started to, to drink whenever I could. And I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to start drinking again. So when I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking, you know. So it was already in my mind, you know, alcohol was becoming a bigger and bigger part of my life, you know. Um, as I went on through my teenage years, but I, I started to suffer consequences from my drinking. I started to feel very sick. I started to get a bit jittery and have like the heebie-jeebies in the morning. And I found the only way to get rid of that was to drink again. So I started drinking in the mornings and, you know, about the age 18, 19 years old, I was already drinking in the morning. Um, I became a wino. I loved drinking cheap wine and it was cheap 
and it had hit, it had hit the mark. Um, so I would drink that and the shakes would go away. And, um, and I found that I could go out and I could function in the world. Um, when I left school, I got a, a job as a, um, a French polisher. So if you don't know what a French polisher is, that's someone who polishes furniture. And I worked in an antique restoration place and uh, it was right near the pub. And we would go to the pub at lunchtime. Um, and I hope you guys can still hear me. Okay. Um, yeah, I'd go to the pub, pub at lunchtime and I would drink and um, with the older guys. And then I would go straight after work. I'd go to the pub and I'd start drinking again. So alcohol became a bigger and bigger part of my life. Um, I slowly started to gravitate towards the city where I lived in Sydney itself. Um, I grew up in the suburbs, but I ended up gravitating towards the city. And when I got in there, uh, I started drinking in the early openers and I would drink before I went to work uh, in those early openers. And um, I was in there one morning um, in this pub where I used to, used to go about 5.30. So I'm in there, in there drinking schooners. Um, and I looked across and there, there was my future wife sitting there drinking schooners too. So I started drinking with this woman that I met there. And uh, what a great place to meet your future wife, drinking schooners at 5.30 in the morning. But that's, that's my story and that was my reality. Um, so we started a relationship. I think we were in bed that night. Um, and, and it just became the whole relationship was based on drinking alcohol. The whole essence of everything that we did was about drinking. And we started to take off and do that, you know, with this enthusiasm. And we would drink together and ultimately we would fight together. Um, it became very toxic. There was domestic violence. There was neglect. Uh, love went out the window, basically, as alcoholism took over that relationship. Um, we did get married and um, we had a young son. And um, after that, um, my wife actually became very depressed after the, after the birth of our child. And uh, we had a young son named Luke. Um, and she really, really wasn't doing well. And uh, her alcoholism was progressing. Um, and I, I say all this, uh, ultimately, you know, as I get down the track a bit, you'll understand why. Um, so as time went on, um, both our lives started to become worse and worse and worse. Um, we were both drinking around the clock. I would come home from work um, and knock on the door. Uh, she wouldn't let me in. I would try to get in and there'd be like that, that little chain that would only uh, allow you to open the door so far. And I would sort of look in there and I would see my son crying and she would be passed out on the floor and there would be bottles and I couldn't get in. And there was all this horrendous stuff going on um, that was actually spiraling out of control. And um, sometime after that, she, uh, my, my wife actually tried to take her own life. Um, she wasn't successful in, in completing uh, a suicide, but she did end up in hospital for a very long time, was in extremely sick. Um, so by this time I had to quit my job. Um, so I, I was supposed to be looking after my, my son, Luke. Um, I couldn't even look after myself. 
I used to go to the hospital where she was. I would visit there drunk of a night time um, and want to fight the staff there. I used to get escorted off the premises by the security guards. They would tell me to go away. I would come back the next night and turn on another scene. I was angry um, and I was completely out of control. And ultimately <clears throat> what happened after a, after a two and a half years hospital stay and several unsuccessful operations, my wife turned up on the front doorstep where we were living after two and a half years of locked up dry time and started to drink again and arrived with a cask of wine on the doorstep. And within a couple of weeks, uh, on a Sunday morning, like it is here in Australia now, on a Sunday morning, in the horrors, with delirium tremens, had this huge seizure and died drunk in my arms. It was absolutely a horrendous experience. And um, at the time, I thought it was like, this is the worst day of my life. And, um, and it was all over. And um, I was like a 30-year-old guy who had this young son um, and I had no idea what I was going to do. And, um, you know, a few days later, I, I turned up drunk at a funeral. I couldn't stay sober for a day. Um, and I had no idea what was wrong with me. I had no idea why I was like that. I had no idea why I couldn't stop drinking, why alcohol had become my master. I just didn't understand any of it. Ultimately, what happened was uh, we ended up on the streets. The place that I, I was staying um, was owned my, by my wife's brother and it had to be sold. Um, so I ended up on the streets and uh, I had my young son and uh, ultimately I had to go under some sort of uh, single parent pension, I think it was called at the time, because I couldn't work. I was supposed to be looking after him, but I couldn't do that. Um, I was sleeping on other people's lounges. Um, I was walking the streets. I was financially broke. Uh, alcohol had drained me of all my resources. I would push my son around on the pram. He would help me look for cigarette butts on the street. And um, and I was going down and I, I didn't know why. And then uh, about December 1995, um, I started on a drinking spree because that's what I would do. I would pick up a drink and I would go missing like for weeks and weeks on end. And um, I had been sleeping on this guy's lounge in the suburbs of Sydney and I went on this drinking spree uh, and I was running around up at King's Cross like a maniac most of the time in blackouts, having no idea what I was doing. And in mid-January 1996, about mid-January, I came out of a blackout and, um, and I realised I had no money and I realised I had nothing. And I went back to this guy's place in the suburbs uh, and I arrived there, I think it was about 8 o'clock in the morning on a Monday morning when this guy was getting ready to go to work. And here I was showing up after being missing for six weeks and he's looking after my son and, you know, he's getting ready for work and I'm sort of tapping on the door like this and he took one look at me and I'm not going to swear now, I'll have to edit this, but he used a word which starts with F and he said, you're 
hopeless and you got to go. And um, that broke me. And I burst into tears like a child. And um, I had this moment where, call it what you like, a moment of clarity, a moment of grace, whatever you want to call it, where I knew that he was telling me the truth, that I was hopeless. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I can't, you know, I don't know a better way than to get to Alcoholics Anonymous when your life feels absolutely hopeless. And that's in Bill's story. That's what that's what exactly Bill says in his story. He was hopeless. You know what I mean? After Ebby had came to him um, with the message of the Oxford group at the time. So, um, so as a result of that, um, I went over and I made a phone call. And um, the phone call I made uh, was to my mother. Um, my mother and father were alive then. Uh, basically, no one would speak to me except my mother. My brothers had given up on me. My father wouldn't speak to me. I'd worn them all out. But I made a phone call. And as a result of that phone call, they, my mother helped me get into a, uh, a locked detox ward, uh, which used to be behind Wollongong Hospital. It's no longer there. It's been bulldozed now. It's long gone. But I ended up in there for about seven or nine days, I think it was. And um, after that, I uh, came down to the town where I now live uh, and went to a treatment facility in that town. And it was on a Friday afternoon and I walked into that place and I had a green garbage bag with a few rags in it. Basically, that's all I owned. And I walked into a beginner's meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was, that was being run at that time. And I don't really remember what people were saying I just remember how I felt. I somehow felt that whatever was going on in that meeting was for me. And I just felt this sense of relief, like somehow, I didn't know how, but somehow I was home and somehow that this place was safe. And I had never felt safe for a very, very long time. So it really did have a profound effect on me. And the way that people shared, I knew that they were coming from the heart and I knew that they weren't. Um, they were telling the truth. And that's, that's, you know, so desperately what I needed to hear was the truth. So as a result of, of attending that meeting, uh, my life started to change little bit by little bit and I started to get a, a little bit of hope. I've got to say that I was mad and I was crazy for several weeks and months. Um, and I understand why now. Uh, that's because, you know, and I know I'm not alone with that, but any new person who comes along, as I said earlier, I felt very lost. I felt very frightened. I had no idea how this was all going to work out. AA, although it made sense to me, I didn't understand the concepts or what any of it was really about, but I certainly had hope. Um, and back in those days in that facility, uh, we used to go to lots of outside meetings and they would put you on a bus. And whether you liked it or not, you went off to meetings and we would go up and down the coast of New South Wales to all these different meetings. And I remember going to this one particular meeting, and some of them were fairly large meetings. I remember going to this one meeting uh, at a place. It was in this little tin shed, and it was in summer, and the sweat was pouring off me. It was boiling hot. It was like 40 degrees Celsius in this place. And I remember being in this room, and it was like there was this fog in there, and I had, like, these electric fleas, and I was shaking, and I used to get like this... Uh, Bill used to say he used to get the collie wobbles 
that he used to have like the thought that he had like this peptic ulcer all the time. And that's what I f felt that I had. I used to get this gnawing anxiety, you know what I mean, around my sternum there. And I, my heart would pound and I used to feel like I was going to have a heart attack and the whole lot. And I, I used to think a couple of times, they're going to have to stretch me out of this meeting. I'm going to die in this meeting, you know. And if this is what sobriety's like, give this a miss, you know what I mean? And some old guy would say to me, oh, keep coming back. It gets better. And I used to think, you got no idea what I'm going through. No idea. And these waves of grief and trauma and remorse about what happened with my wife and all that would come over me because I'd never dealt with any of that. So these huge waves of emotion would hit me. And I, I used to think, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. There's something else wrong with me. I'm not just an alcoholic. I'm nuts. You know what I mean? But I was in this particular meeting and um, it was like the, this fog sort of parted and they had this huge sign um, on the chairman's table and it said, this isn't a trial run, this is it. And I remember thinking, they're exactly right. You know what, if I drink again, there's no guarantees I'll ever get sober. And that was a real turning point for me because I knew what had happened to my wife and I knew if I drank again, that might happen to me. You know what I mean? So that was a really big turning point for me in my life. So I started to uh, I continue to attend those meetings and then I got out of that facility after four months and I had built a network of AA members in the local area because some of them would come to that treatment centre and carry the message, you know, in those meetings that were held there. Um, so those people gave me great hope and I got a lot of gratitude for those people. They really helped me find myself by their telling of the stories and they kept encouraging me and they kept supporting me and they kept telling me to keep coming back. You're going to be okay. Let's do this together. You're not alone anymore. You know what I mean? And I had felt very, very alone and very lost before that. So, so to me, you know, my life very, very slowly started to change. And one of the greatest things in that treatment facility for me was on a Tuesday night, there used to be a steps meeting. Uh, the steps meeting still exists. It's not in the actual venue anymore. It's somewhere else. But um, but in that steps meeting, they used to they used to put on these old VHS movies of of these step talks by a guy called Joe McHugh. And I would I would watch. And that first week I was there, I would watch his step talks. And the first one was on step one. And I used to listen to that guy. And I used to go. Now I understand why I drink again. Now I understand why I'm powerless. I get it. I get it. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a chronic alcoholic. I have this illness. You know what I mean? And what I've come, come to understand about my alcoholism is I know four things about it that are, are real for me. This is what I've come to understand about my own illness. And the first thing I know about it is it's progressive. You know what I mean? And that was absolutely true. You know, for me, the older I got, the more it progressed, the more out of control I got. You know, the next thing I, I know about my alcoholism, it's terminal. It's a terminal illness. In the big book, it says once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you know, which is absolutely true. And the next thing I know about it is ultimately it's fatal. You know what I mean? If it's left untreated and it runs its course, I just, you know, I get locked up or covered up. You know what I mean? And that's what old Joe used to say. You're either sober up or you get locked up or covered up. You know what I mean? This You're at the turning point. What are you going to do about your life here? You know, 
And that's the fourth thing I've discovered is that you can recover from it through a daily reprieve. It's called one day at a time. I have this daily reprieve where someone like me who's got chronic alcoholism can recover and stay well if I put the program into my life on a daily basis. And that's exactly what I started to do. Uh, I learned a lot from that guy and a lot of other guys, I've got to say, a lot of them were Americans that were influencing me. I was listening to tapes. I was listening to a lot of those, old, those older guys who were really living the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So they were walking the walk and I was learning a great deal from these guys. And I absolutely loved the influence they had on my life. You know what I mean? So when I got out of that treatment facility, I joined a local group. I got a sponsor. Uh, I had basically taken the first three steps and I started to write inventory. I started to write columned inventory, um, my resentments, my fears, sex conduct of the past, all that stuff was written out. Um, and I did a fifth step with a guy. Uh, I got a sponsor and I did a fifth step with this fellow and he really helped me. He really helped me. To, he listened to me. You know what I mean? And um, it was a, uh, a really big turning point for me that I was starting to little bit by little bit get free. You know what I mean? And I absolutely love, um, I absolutely love uh, the fifth step promises, which is on page 75 in the big book. There's a set of promises there. And one of the first promises it says, after taking a fifth step, it says, we'll be delighted. And I really like that word delighted. You know what I mean? That you actually feel lighter. You know what I mean? And I had felt so heavy for so long and felt like I've been carrying the weight of the world around with me. Because, and that's because I was self-will run right. You know what I mean? And trying to control the whole universe. But um, I did. I felt lighter. You know what I mean? You know, I started to, to realise that there was a God. You know what I mean? In the beginning, I just believed that there was a God or I was willing to believe. But by this time, I was starting to, uh, that faith was starting to grow. And I realised um, I was actually starting to walk hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. And I absolutely, I absolutely love those promises uh, that are in the fifth step. So I had a lot of resentments that I had to inventory. And the one of them... Um, the one of them that wouldn't shift, they all seemed to shift and I seemed to get free of all of them except one of them. And um, I'm not sure what page it's on in the fourth edition, but I got sober on the third edition of the big book. And I know there's a story in the back of there called Freedom from Bondage. Um, and on page 552, there was uh, a story of why, how this lady had to pray for her mother. And in my case, I had to pray for my late wife. I found that I couldn't get free of the resentment. I, I, I resented her even though she had passed away. I still resented her because she had died and left our son without a mother. And um, I had to pray for her. And uh, I started praying that prayer and taking up that suggestion of praying for her happiness, her prosperity and her health. And I would get down on my knees every morning and I would pray. That, you know, for Pam and her happiness, her prosperity and her health. And I don't know how long I did that, several weeks, I think, but just one morning I was praying that prayer and I started to cry and I realised that I was free. 
from the resentment I had against her and I no longer resented her. And um, yeah, she never made it. And, uh, and it changed me, it changed me. So the power of prayer is a huge thing for me. And certainly the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, from step three onward, there are, there are prayers all through the book, all the way through the book. I understand that I'm not doing this alone. I have to continually go to God because God is my answer. God is my ultimate solution. And he's the one who has all power, like was read out earlier in that prayer by Cherie. Um, so I started to continue my way through the program. And, you know, after that fifth step, I became willing to let go of some of the things that I had seen, the things that I admitted were objectionable. And in step seven, I asked God to remove them. And I got out on my knees and I said the seven-step prayer, my creator, etc. And um, my life started to change even more and more. And I, I distinctly remember at that time in my life, I was living with a young guy who was like a, like a young brother to me. Uh, he was at, I was in the treatment facility with him and I, sh I shared a room with him. And at the time, he was a really young guy. He was only like 20 years old when he was in there. Um, and I, I, I shared a place with him. And I remember one Saturday morning waking up and looking out the window and uh, the birds were chirping and it was a sunny morning. And I had this feeling that I don't need to drink anymore. Something has happened to me that I don't understand, but I realise that it's God doing for me what I can't do for myself. You know what I mean? God has showed up in my life um, and I'm free from the obsession to drink alcohol. Already around that point of five, six, seven, doing a really thorough four, five, six, seven in Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe there's huge power in those steps, three, four, five, six, seven. You know what I mean? All that house cleaning, taking stock, honestly, et cetera, is uh, a huge power behind that. It's God's power. Um, and then I started to make direct amends to people. I went to my parents. I went to other people, my brothers, my son, um, people that I used to work with. I had to go to Sydney um, and make amends to people and clear up the wreckage of my past as much as I could. And um, I started to experience some of the other promises that are in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my life continued to change. And uh, I started to continually go back to that treatment facility and carry the message in those meetings there. And uh, I've basically been, except for a couple of short breaks, I've basically been doing that for the last 24 years. I've continued to go back to that facility and carry the message the same way as those guys did for me when I was lost and desperately needed someone else to show me the way. You know what I mean? And that, that facility is because of the lockdowns at the moment, that facility has been closed for a couple of weeks, so I haven't been able to go up there. You know what I mean? But it makes such a huge difference to me to do that continually. It puts my life in perspective. You know what I mean? And I know it's in Bill's story. He talks about that. He talks about having this, his, his hot flash or this huge spiritual experience in the town's hospital. And then basically on the next page, he says that he's plagued with self-pity, waves of resentment and self-pity. You know what I mean? So that tells me, hey, hey, just because you've had a, a spiritual upheaval, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be well. You know, self-will comes back into your life and ego encroaches again. 
you know what I mean? And so as he says in his story, he said that he would go back to the hospital in despair. And on talking to the new man there, he'd be amazingly lifted up. And that's what that's what happens to me when I get around people who are who are new, who are lost, you know what I mean, who be may be completely deluded about whether they even have alcoholism and perhaps can't even see it, you know, like I never could before I came to AA. But all I can do is uh go up there and tell my story, you know what I mean, and tell people the truth, you know what I mean, and go up there and have like this cheerful humility about the way that I do that, no expectations, carry the message, it's not up to me, if it doesn't stick, it doesn't matter, I'm carrying the AA message, you know, and if any of those guys ever reach out, I'm there, you know, I'm handing out my phone numbers, I'm trying to make connections with them, I've certainly gone up there plenty of times in the past and talked to people one-on-one, -on -one and stuff like that if they're willing to do it you know so i have a real passion about treatment work i think it's really important you know so is pub pi and cpc or if you knew that means public information and cooperating with the professional community all those things are also part of service that we do in aa you know what i mean and all these things over the years have really helped me to grow they've got me out of my comfort zone i've been able to talk to people who are non-alcoholic you know, about my alcoholism and things like that. And it's all helped me to get free. Um, so these so these days, you know, um, I am living in step 10, 11 and 12. Um, I'm not sure how long we've got to go because I'm not sure what time we started, but because I know we started a bit late. Um, but yeah, so, so, so these, these days, um, you know, for some time now um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been heavily involved in the fellowship. I've been involved in service. I believe in the traditions. I certainly believe in sponsorship um, and practicing the disciplines of step 10 and 11 are really important for me if I'm gonna stay spiritually fit. Um, and being in fit spiritual condition is a ongoing, um, is an ongoing uh, process that is really, really important to me. And it sometimes it can be difficult, like at the time we're in at the moment when you're isolated and you can't go out and you're stuck in your home, you know, um, I'm, I've remarried, you know, I've married a, another person in the fellowship. My wife's 26 years sober and we're in here together all the time. You know what I mean? And sometimes that's really challenging. You know what I mean? When you can't get out and about. Uh, and you can't give each other space, sometimes that can be quite challenging. Um, so I really need to put the program into my life. I need to continue to watch for resentment, dishonesty, selfishness, and fear. I need to constantly be in prayer and meditation. Um, I, love, I love step 11. Step 11 is a really important part of my life to improve my conscious contact with God. Um, so I start my day like I did today with step 11. You know, on awakening, page 86. So I start my day with step 11. And step 11 to me is like, they're like bookends for 24 hour a day living. I start the day with step 11. And then throughout the day, I work step 10 and step 11 throughout the day. And then again, at night, I close the day with step 11. Um, 
And there are questions there on that page, on page 86, about doing a nightly review. And that nightly review basically says, um, how do, did I do step 10 today? That's really what those questions are about. It's like, it's like, did you practice early detection today? Did you work the 10th step today? And if you didn't, here's a series of questions. It's like a safety net at the end of the day to check up on that. You know what I mean? And see how I'm doing, see if I am staying spiritually fit. Um, and that takes discipline. That takes a lot of dis discipline to be able to do that continuously. Um, but I found all this stuff extremely beneficial for me um, over a long period of time. And I'm certainly living in the 12th step. Um, and this, again, means a great deal to me. Um, you know, sponsorship, you know, is something to me that has been really, really important. I, I have always had a sponsor. I think I'll take that back. There may have been some period many years ago when I was the, between sponsors, when I didn't have a sponsor because uh, of circumstances, the sponsor I had wasn't in the area anymore. And I know I was looking for a new one and it took me a while to, to decide about that because I do think sponsors are really important. Having a network is, and a home group is hugely important, but sponsorship to me, that one-on-one -on -one, uh, living example of someone who's walking the walk shoulder to shoulder with me is really important. And that person that I can go to um, on a continuous basis and have a continuing dialogue is part of that. That's part of that. I'm not doing this on my own. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a bit like the fellowship and the group's always there for me, but my sponsor sort of takes that one step further. You know what I mean? He knows the ins and outs. He, he's a guy that I can get intimate and vulnerable with when I may be frightened to do it like on a bigger scale with everyone, you know, because I don't need to. I don't need to tell everyone everything, but I certainly need to tell another human being continuously how I'm doing. And a lot of those conversations these days are about how the guys that I sponsor are doing and whether I'm having any difficulties there and what I might be able to do about it. Um, so that's so that's really important to me. Um, and just to, I think I've only got about 10 minutes left. So just, just a couple of things I want to talk about um, that have been difficult for me, but have been the most fulfilling experiences of my recovery. Um, one of what I just want to say is that when I was about 14 years sober, um, my home group runs a book study and um, on Sunday night. And um, I was asked to read um, a paragraph, which is on page 107. And it talks about being on the treadmill um, just one moment. I'm just gonna we'll actually read this so I don't so I get it right. Um, yeah, so down the bottom of 106, it says we began to ask medical advice as the sprees got closer together, the alarming physical and mental symptoms, the deepening pall of remorse, depression, and inferiority that settled down on our loved ones. These things terrified and distracted us. As animals on a treadmill, we have patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile effort 
to reach solid ground. Most of us had ended the final stage with its commitment to health resorts, sanitariums and hospitals, <coughs> hospitals and jails. Sometimes there was screaming delirium and insanity. Death was often near. And when I had to read that out, I started to cry because that's how my wife died. And I realized that again, there was still more layers of this stuff that I just felt like there was still unfinished business somehow. And I remember driving off to work the next morning on Monday and I was crying again. I was thinking, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? I thought I was free of this stuff. And at the time, at the time I talked to my sponsor about it and he encouraged me to take it specifically into meditation and ask God um, to reveal to me what I needed to do, if I needed to do anything. You know what I mean? Maybe I just needed to let it go and turn it over. Maybe there was something else I could do about it. So anyway, I started to do that. And um, I remember um, a couple of mornings in a row I, in meditation, I, would, I started to see a silhouette of her in my meditations. And it's like she would drift further and further away to this vanishing point. On, and I, she, I would just see her drift away and I, I had no idea what this was about. And then the next morning, the same thing happened to me and I got started to get this message and it's like, you need to tell her again, right? You need to make amends again, but not like you did before. You need to practice these principles in all your affairs. So why don't you write another letter, but tell her, tell her how you're actually doing now and how great your life is and that you're 14 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And our son, Luke, is doing really great. You know what I mean? That he's now 18 years old and he's just finished his HSC and he's a really good golfer and he loves cricket and he's got a girlfriend and he's doing really well. So I, I prayed about that and I wrote a letter and um, and, and this is bringing me to, to my mate. Um, who's now my sponsor and a man that means a great deal to me. Um, and I, I went out and um, I went out to a place here close to where we live, um, a place called Jervis Bay, where there's a beautiful bay there. And we went out there and I read out this letter and, um, and this, this particular guy, he has exactly the same experience as what I did, you know, at the time, you know, um, he, he also had a partner in Alcoholics Anonymous who after 10 years had drank again and also died in exactly the same circumstances as what my late wife had died in a seizure. So, you know, we had this, we still do, we have this kindred relationship, this very close spiritual connection. And I went out there and I read this letter to him and, um, and we put a little red rose, which we had picked, which my current wife had picked from the front garden here where we live. And we put it on the water and we watched it float out. And something happened, something happened through that experience where I was able to get free. So the reason I'm saying all this is if something's really troubling you in your recovery, it doesn't matter if you're 20 days or 20 years or whatever, if something's really troubling you and you can't get free from it, please pray about it. Please meditate about it. Please talk about it. Please be willing to let go of it. 
um, and the power of God can come into your life and help you with some of those things that you think you can never ever get free of. And the reason I say that is that's my experience. And um, and the, the last thing I want to say is uh, my mother passed away a couple of years ago and um, she had dementia for quite a number of years. And uh, when she passed away, um, you know, I have I have three older brothers. I have three older brothers, and um, and one of them in particular took a very long time to actually forgive me for the way that I used to behave as a practicing alcoholic. Understandably, he was very bitter about the way I had continued to hurt him, and I had hurt his mother over and over and over. You know, and um, and when my mother passed away. They basically all of them came to me and said, can you help us write the eulogy? So they all came here and we sat around and we were able to write a eulogy and able to all agree on it. And then they wanted me to read it at my mother's funeral. And I was like this guy that they had resented and had a great deal of anger towards because of the way I had hurt them over and over and over. You know what I mean? And here I was with them saying hey younger brother because i'm like the youngest can you do this for us we trust you you know what i mean that's how much my life has turned around to me that's alcoholics anonymous for me um and the last thing i want to say is uh um my my son luke will be 30 in december and uh he's he's been with this girl uh, he's had a partner. They've been together since they were about 18, I think. So they've been together for about 12 years. And uh, so that young, that young child I used to push around in the pram and he would help me look for cigarette butts on the street will be 30 in December. And I've just recently heard that he's about to have his first child. So I'm going to be a grandfather. And, um, and I'll tell you what, when I think about it, see, it still cuts me up when I when I think about that, that his mother never got to see any of this stuff, that she never got to see him grow up, that he was like three years old when he died. That's just when, yeah, my son was three when, when she passed away. So, so there it is, still deep down within. There's still, there's still these feelings, you know what I mean, that exist below the level of consciousness, if you like but it's still there, you know what I mean? So that tells me that I am a human being. I've been restored to sanity. I feel these things. I don't have to run away anymore. You know, this is the real world I live in, you know, and the trials and low spots are coming like we're in now. But at the end of the day, all is well. All is well in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, I just hope we have a great weekend. Uh, I'm sure we will. and. Um, this has been an absolute privilege to share with you guys. Um, I never imagined I'd be doing anything like this all those years ago when I was lost in my alcoholism. So um, thanks everyone for caring and sharing. I hope we have a wonderful weekend and um, we know that God's with us in the fellowship of the spirit. Thanks guys. Thank you.